0: Well, this is now the third lesson in the, our series on the Christian family, and today we're going to be looking at a topic that actually we were strongly introduced to about four years ago, and uh, so it'll be the home and sphere sovereignty. And our introductory question this morning is, when would, when would we disobey human authority, That's something we were probably all exercised on to some degree uh, four years ago. I looked over notes that I had written for a class I taught in January of 2020, and I I made a comment like, you know, I'm not going to pick alcohol because it's just so common for how, where Christians might disagree. So I picked something like marriage and divorce and remarriage and things like that, you know, where Christians would disagree on because it was like, I don't know what other practical topic I knew I could think of some others, but there wasn't one like staring me in the face. And little did I know, like two months from that, there would be one staring me in the face. If you get my drift, for a double entendre with that one. And so, um, so we have big questions. When do we? When would it be right to disobey a human authority? I'm assuming here that the baseline would be obeying human authority. So, all right, so I'm open, the floor is open. When would it when would it be right to disobey human authority? Yes. Going against that law, like your boss told you to lie. Okay. So, if some if God says something and your boss commands you to lie, for example, uh, of which I could bear testimony to that, not for myself, but somebody else has told me very plainly that happened in their workplace. Let's just cut corners on the material costs and then just say it was what we built it to be. But the material isn't going to be there and nobody's going to dig into it to find out, kind of thought. So, in this case, uh, the Christian said, I can't do that. Okay, good. That's a good example. Yes. Okay, so not, so broadening any human authority tries to coerce you to do something against God's word. Okay, of which we could come up with several examples. A little pinch of incense to the image of Caesar. Something like that from back in the 3rd century. How about instead of something we do... Okay, yes? Forbidding us from doing something good. <laughs> kind of the converse of it, right? right. Like the what would be an the example? government says... You the city walls and left to die you have to leave them to die and christians rescue them okay that that would be problem. so infant exposure in the in the roman empire it was forbidden to rescue these babies and yet christians would disobey that prohibition okay yes Okay, that's a a great example there. So like a supervisor tells me to do this or that and I know and I heard the CEO or the manager, plant manager say explicitly, this is what we're doing. You know, so then I would need to like probably have a conversation, but if there's stubbornness there, it's like I have to go with a higher authority. Or... Older brother says to do something and younger brother says, Mom didn't say to do that. You know, it can be even down a small level. Yes, one more. Yes. When you're told to do something or believe something that you can't in your conscience agree with, so maybe that can happen more in spiritual authority, like say, like in the New Testament, why are you washing your hands? Oh. Jesus is saying, guys, Okay. And so the obligating people something that God had commanded. Okay, so, so something God had not commanded at all that was left to human liberty is now being dictated by human authority as if I have a say in this, maybe even invoking God's name, and yet it's not written in the book. Or it doesn't apply to us today. Maybe it applied to the Jews back in the Old Testament but not to us today. There's a, variety of, there's a variety of situations, is there not? Where it's like, we are going to be required. Actually, it would be right. We would dishonor God if we didn't, you know, if we obeyed this. That's the thing. So a lot of it comes down to applying what, was what Paul mentioned, just the larger authority, and the uh, largest authority is God. And so, you know, ultimately we have God to obey, and we must obey God rather than men, is what the apostles said, right? You, you tell us whom we should obey in Acts 4.19 and Acts 5.29 when they were forbidden to preach in the name of Christ and the apostles said we, we must. So these are the ones that, that were the ones that exercised my mind a lot in the past You know, because it's just an individual command and somebody says this and I know God says this. Today I want to go out on a, kind of move away from that into something that maybe we haven't thought of as much. And because this is more of an exploration for many of us in the room, like this would not be a topic we would normally think about, that there are spheres of, you call them sovereignty, we call them sphere sovereignty, but spheres of authority that God instituted in this world that have certain realms or areas that, we're, that basically are their prerogatives to say things in. And that he has not given other authorities that same prerogative in those same areas. It'll become clear when we identify the spheres. Chief institutions. What is the first institution that God instituted in humankind? Amen. Ah, family. So this is a sphere. We're going to make these round. And so Genesis chapter 2. If Genesis chapter 1 is the beginning of mankind versus animal or God. Well, not God or angels or such, but Adam or mankind. Genesis chapter 2 is the beginning of man and woman, the beginning of family. We saw that last week when we identified the definition of of marriage. And so God put on this earth he put authority structure in which the man is head of his wife by virtue of the fact that she comes from man and she is made for man. So both derivation and design has male headship in the in the relationship and we'll see that In probably a week or two, we'll kind of dive into that further. But the family is a sphere. At this point in human history, it's the only sphere. Once sin enters the world, it goes toxic. And we start seeing from Genesis 3.16 that the woman's desire will be for the man and he will rule over her. And both of those are bad words according to Genesis 4 where sin's desire is for Cain and he must master it. It's the same exact language. These are not friendly terms. There is conflict between the man and the woman that has come into the home by virtue of sin. And because of that, there's a power struggle in the home. And by the end of chapter 4, you have Lamech speaking to, note this, his wives, contrary to the way God set it up, he's got two and he says, "If Cain is avenged sevenfold, I'm avenged 70-fold, I have killed a boy. I think he says, "I've killed a boy for striking me." So taking matters in his own hands, a vigilante culture, kind of a wild, wild West kind of feel. There's no Marshall, U.S. marshal around for miles. I'm the law out here on my ranch, And the chilling thing is, he's speaking to his wives. Like, don't mess with me. I know no bounds in my vengeance. You too would die. So when it says that the earth was filled with violence, that doesn't just mean out in the field like Cain striking Abel. It's in the home. There is violence everywhere. It is filling the earth. And so when God resets the world and reboots creation in Genesis chapter 9, he puts his second institution in the world. And what is that one? Government. It's government. Because he says in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 that if any man sheds another man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Not, not just directly now, like God, you know, puts a mark on Cain and actually curses Cain and You know, it's not directly from God, no just flood from heaven. It's like, I am now duly deputizing man to police man. And if any man, like Lamech, sheds another man's blood, by man, his blood shall be shed. Which tells us not all killing is wrong. There is justified putting to death somebody, in this case a murderer. And so a murderer is put to death. So when the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not kill, and literally it says kill, harag in the Hebrew, we take it in context in the Pentateuch in the Law of Moses that capital punishment would not be excluded from that because of a verse like that. Okay. That's the second institution. Now we got two. Now we got two human authorities. We got the husband, the dad, and we got... The law. What's the third institution? Okay, now this is going to be a theological debate whether we call it the church in the Old Testament or not. We're just going to, can we all just agree that maybe it's not proper to call it the church in the Old Testament? You know, dispensational theology would reserve that word for Pentecost and beyond, and I respect that. But I do think a dispensationalist theologian would also recognize organized religion of some sort begins with Moses. That's authorized organized religion under God where you have a system, an institution put in place, where you have authority, a priesthood, you have sacrifices, a whole system is there. So I'm going to call it church and put quotation marks over it. Just to respect both sides of the of the debate there. But definitely today, we also have the institution of church. And so under this, you would have then, this starts with Moses and then moves into the New Testament. How many of you played volleyball? Okay. What do you think about that person that like thinks they're really, really good and they just play everybody's position. Wow. That humor, that little ripple of like, you know, it makes me feel like that person is well-loved. You know, it's like, (laughs) not really, but sorry. It's like, there is something to the fact, well, when one of these spheres begins to play everybody's position on the court, we're not all that happy about that. Like God gave you a a part to play, God gave you a role to fulfill. It's over there. Please fulfill your role. We'll fulfill our role, Lord willing, and then we can all get along much better. Our verse, our verse for this is Matthew twenty-one, actually twenty-two, verse twenty-one. Where Jesus is confronted by the authorities, the Jewish authorities, they're trying to trip him up, and they ask him a question Should we pay taxes or not? Now, you think that should be a, just a, a simple, straightforward yes or no. But it's one of those split the horns of the dilemma, and our Lord, being infinitely wise, split the horns of the dilemma and said, Where's a coin? <clears throat> Right? And then he, so a denarius is about this big. It's smaller than our U.S. cent. And, uh, you know, whose image is on that? And they said, Caesar. And Jesus said then, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render under God the things that are God's. There are some things that belong to Caesar, and there's some things that don't belong to Caesar. Some things Caesar has direct and authorized jurisdiction to oversee. And some things he does not. Which is kind of interesting in light of, you know, our dollar bills and our coins have U.S. presidents on it or such. And, uh, you know, to think that, yes, it is true, your money is on loan in some respects, and so the U.S. government has a say In taxes and money. That's part of their jurisdiction. That's part of what they play, the court they play. You know, that's their corner of the court. And so, render your taxes to your government and make April 15th a holiday unto the Lord. (laughs) Because it is a servant of the Lord. So, Romans 13 says, as an act of conscience, not just because we might get punished, we should render our, our taxes. So it's actually a good thing to think of it. I am doing an act of worship today to the authority over this authority because God put this authority in place. So I will honor God by paying my taxes. Okay. But then there are some things that do not have Caesar's image on it. This is an interesting argument. Doug Wilson made this argument while back, that's where I read it, he maybe came up with it, maybe he didn't come up with it, but if I look at my children and I say, whose image is on my children? There's three possible answers, I suppose. <laughs> Two of them are very close together. <laughs> you know, wow, you look a lot like your dad. Or you sure look a lot like your mom. You know, there's Genesis chapter 5 actually says that, I think it was Adam, that his son was in his image and that we bear a resemblance to our parents. And so using the logic of Jesus, this implies parental rights. And I think parental rights should be honored by this fear because those children were not given to the state They were given to a family, and the family has first and primary responsibility for the raising of those children, as well as they are made in the image of God. And so to offer our children to the Lord, as Hannah did Samuel, and as we do periodically in our church... Imitating what Matthew 19 is, where it's like they brought their children, their babes actually, to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and bless them. We have child dedication. Say, Lord, bless our children. May they be and belong to you forever. Not us, because we have them temporarily, but may they belong to you forever. And so, does that make sense? The family has chief responsibility. For children, not the government. Now the government has some role to hold a family accountable in that they police if there's bodily harm. If there gets to be between neighbor and neighbor, you might say, between parents and children, there is a role that the police force should come into play to stop the damage being done. But thankfully, having listened to a lot of foster, several foster stories moving to adoption. Our government is not prone to pull those rights quick and pull parental rights. And may that be the case because there needs to be much proven in order to pull those rights. That should be some way that the government respects sphere sovereignty of the family. Does that make sense? So I think you recognize there is something to this when Jesus says, render under this, to this sphere what belongs to this sphere, render under that sphere what belongs to that sphere. Where does a school sit? How many say the family? How many say the government? How many say the church? This church actually has a school. <laughs> I could close her down, I guess that I <laughs> Oh okay. Uh, I mean, if we're talking about what image it bears, public schools bears an image of the government right now very obviously. Whereas Christian schools may or may not bear a Christian a true Christian school image, like a true Christ image. Ah. So, in other words, they they kind of bear the image of the sponsor to some degree, it sounds like. Yeah, yes, EJ. But ultimately, aren't you under some kind of obligation and that you have to prove that you're teaching certain things, even in a church, Mm -hmm. to the government? So ultimately, the government is in charge of that? It's the way it's set up in our country. Yes. But... Right. are answering to the government so hence why I think the government is in charge because we've allowed it to be well and then I, the question would be and I'm not advocating one position or another here, but it teases the question out because the school is one of the hardest ones to answer on this that's why I brought it up it's a great one to wrestle with we, I spent two weeks wrestling with this because it came up in an elders meeting I'm like should a church have a school yeah. And so I had to I had to like tease that one out for two weeks. It ended up being four pages of <laughs> documentation to try and get to the bottom of that one. So so yeah, it's it's so thankfully our government does have civics as the one specific requirement in this state on actual content. It specifies certain content, but that's a sphere. So yes, Nancy and I saw it, Josiah. We're still not getting the church having a school. Like, what the... (laughs) Okay, so you're allowing other influences and other voices, but you're saying primary responsibility is family. Yeah, Josiah. I mean, that's basically what I was- So ultimately, if God, if push comes to shove and this child is ignorant, God comes looking for the the parents. Okay. I'm going to have to move on because of sake of time, but it did its job. It teased it out because you can actually, if you get, if you start looking at these things, you have wonderful conversations for some Friday night with your friends. Okay. You can go around and around on this. Pardon the pun, but it's round and round and, and getting to the bottom of this one. So, but listen, listen to this, uh, this article. It says, in North Korea, children are labeled at birth according to their father's loyalty to the Kim regime. The label controls each child's future prospects for education, employment, and social standing. Then, beginning with the child's first words and continuing through his or her formative years, the government serves as the sole source for education about truth, faith, and morality. Parents have no standing and are imprisoned for dissent. By age 10, all North Korean children must swear allegiance and join the Children's Union, the emblem of which is a red kerchief originally a feature of the Soviet Union's young pioneers. This would be an extreme example of, and a, a real true-to-life example of the government becoming a huge thing. In fact, they masterminded making the Kim regime a religion, as well as taking over functions of the home in the rearing of children, so, when we think about, uh, think about the, the kind of ways in which a government can sin or a family can sin or a church can sin, it may not be in just explicitly telling you to do something that God says don't or forbidding you to do something that God says do. It may be that it's overplaying its bounds and has become huge. So, this is the example when I teased it out at Anchor Bible College where I was teaching this first. You know, I, I first came up with an example like, you must wear polka dots on Thursday. By order of the king. Polka dots only. That's like, okay. You know, what? What? what is the king... Why does my wardrobe pertain anything to what is going on in Washington, D.C.? You know, it's like, you, you got no business telling me what to wear on Thursday. Well, then somebody came up to the class. Well, maybe there's a reason in the state, you know, for state security that everybody's got to wear polka dots on Thursday or something. I don't know. You know, for whatever reason, and you don't know the reason, and so you can't question it. Well, then I was like, okay, by order of the king, everybody must have intimate relations with their spouse twice a week. I hope there's something in you that goes, that is none of your business. Like, stay out of my bedroom. You know? It's like, does the the government have authority to say how you should, how often, what you should do in your marriage? Or is that your marriage? And the government... It has nothing to do with it, you know, in that kind of way. Now, that makes it a little more provocative to say, I don't think that would be appropriate. But some of us have such a conscience geared towards authority, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, that when anything is commanded to us, and we can't come up with any reason explicitly from Scripture that says, well, that would be contrary to what it says right here in this text, that we would just go, well, I guess we need to do it. Instead of feeling the freedom, it's like that doesn't pertain to us because they're stepping over their bounds in commanding something of us that is none of their business. I don't have to render that because it's not their prerogative. It's not their jurisdiction. I think that's a bolder conscience. And I told you, and we prayed at the beginning, that this would be that we would... Be led of the Lord because this is a fragile topic. This must be handled delicately because it could easily be abused and somebody could just play this card all day long and lose their conscience towards God who set the spheres up in the first place. And God would search it out. But here are the... Let's go to then the violations of sphere sovereignty. There are mainly two. The first one is idolatry. When it, it is the only authority, capital A, like the example I read from North Korea, when it is the only authority, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a 90-foot right statue and says, at the playing of the music, you must bow. Now you know, there's commands, you shall not bow down to any graven images. So, that would be against his explicit command. But just picture a regime that is so totalitarian that it tells you and commands you all sorts of things to do in your personal life that is not their jurisdiction. This idolatry leads to, in government, leads to a tyranny, and something that our forefathers were very sensitive to. That this is beyond the jurisdiction of human authority and a government. So, our forebears, English-speaking forebears, actually confronted a king who wanted to save his soul, and the only King John that England ever had uh, got in trouble with the Pope, and he wanted to like hand over the realm to to the Pope. Uh, I think it was Innocent III, so that he could save his soul. And the, the nobility of England got out the big paper. They got out the Magna Carta and they said, There's a, you, don't, you can't do that. There's a limited monarchy. You don't have that kind of authority just to hand over the whole realm to this ecclesiastical authority. And so, a tyranny. There's limits to human government. And it's not absolute. And so this would be one that would be more common, but it is, it is actually very frightening to think that like in World War II, that every Nazi soldier was, swore allegiance to the Fuhrer himself directly to obey him. I hope you never swear allegiance to any human being your conscience belongs to God and is to be dictated by Him and as an ultimate authority. And so we may be loyal in our love, we may be submissive in our behavior, but to swear ultimate allegiance, like anything this authority says, "I do," is to hand over your soul. Don't do that. In the realm of church, this is a cult. When a human authority plays the role of God or the role of Jesus Christ, and begins to speak as if I am Jesus or I am God, and you must obey me, this is one of the reasons why, when I was I was teaching, um, you know, at the college for quite a while on on just Western civilization and Western theological tradition, that I called the medieval Catholic Church a cult. In about 1100, I think it was, every bishop, it was in the investiture controversy, every bishop had to swear allegiance to the Pope in order to get, to get the vesture, you know, to get the palladium, to be a part of the franchise of bishops. It was at that same time period that Paschal II changed the liturgy from something like, may God absolve you, to I absolve you. And it wasn't but a hundred years later when Innocent III brought out in public what was already going on behind the scenes in that the Pope was no longer simply the vicar of St. Peter, the representative of Peter, but was now the vicar of Christ. Those kind of proportions are outlandish in their claims of tying consciences of the bishop of claiming absolution of sins, the forgiveness of sins, and then claiming to be the representative, the head of the church, the representative of Christ on earth. Those are outlandish claims and would validate a title like cult. Um, And so it was of the medieval church that Lord Acton said famously, and Lord Acton was a Catholic, that he said, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. He said that of the medieval popes. And so I don't think I'm being exaggerating when I point to that institution in that time period of having outlandish claims. But this could be anybody. I, I find, for example, if, if somebody were to say, you can't get married at Countryside Bible Church to somebody else unless Pastor Rob signs off on your choice. That is not a made-up example. I find that to be none of the pastor's business. Now, if you sought his counsel or if he had a thought about it because he's he concerned about it, but he can't go, no, I forbid. Or it's not going to happen unless I sign off. You can't purchase this property unless the pastor says, yes, you can purchase the property. It's like, that's a family business thing. The husband and wife should work that out. That's not pastor's job. Pastor, you, you stay on your own side of the court. You follow me? Pastor's got his place to pay. The elders of the church got their place in the court. And so that's, a, that's an authority. It has a certain realm and jurisdiction. It's also one of the reasons why having home church is questionable. Let's just do home church. The dad, I will be the pastor. We'll have communion. We'll express... The visible representation of the church of Jesus Christ on earth, our unity, our symbol of unity with breaking of bread and the passing of the cup. When this is not a church, you don't have the church structure of authority, you don't have the church diversity. I mean, you guys are quite a crew, by the way. You know, I could look out here and go, there's a variety of gifts out here. And there's also a good bit of porcupineness out here. Martin Marty. A liberal theologian from the University of Chicago made the quip that Christians are porcupines. And as soon as they get together and get really close to each other, they start poking each other. That's part of the beauty of church. You guys are really different from each other. You have to learn to love each other. You know, and so praise the Lord through us all in a room in a church family. And we got to learn to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But... The family can't go, we're everything. And this is, for lack of a better term, I'll just put this down, whether it's paternalism, patriarchy, something like that, where it's like the father is the pastor, the father is the king, the father is the husband. He's like, and now the the family is like this huge proportions. And so that also would be, I would contend, Going too far. There is a time when an adult child leaves father and mother. And then Genesis 2 says, clings to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and a new home is established. Leaving father and mother is so critical often for a healthy home. Because sometimes, well, actually quite common, either the wife or the husband hasn't cut the apron strings, as it were, hasn't said, I'm leaving you, and now there's all sorts of problems because there's interference. I know one family in another part of the county, and they're all gone at this point. This is back in the 30s or whatever, like where he basically, when he married... He brought his wife into his fam- his parents' home, and she and he lived with in mom's home for like forty years. And there was like, I don't think I don't think that woman. I th- I think she had a challenge on her hand of like living underneath mother in laws, kind of you know. Leave and cleave is a good principle. There are three things that counselors typically face: marriage counselors. It is uh, money, sex, and in-laws are like the three big hitters of of marriage counseling. Part of that is, is that one or the other hasn't established their own home. So even family to family, there can be interference. Okay, everybody got the, the feel of this? You getting what I'm saying on this? Okay, Questions? yes um, I can give you an example uh, where, would, where would you fall on authority of marriage to the state or to the church to God and maybe I don't know if you see where I'm going with that uh, okay I'm gonna get married but I'm not gonna have a state recognized document mm-hmm yeah the reason why the the natu- like the natural law theorists they say that the state should be involved because children are that the family is ordered for procreation and there's going to be children and that that invites state oversight um, because of the helplessness of the children or such. I'm not sure I buy into that. I do know one thing though, uh, Carl, that I'd like to say at this point is that. A marriage, according to Scripture, is by covenant. And a covenant is a public transaction. It involves witnesses. I didn't realize, but there was a lot of problems in the late Middle Ages with secret weddings or secret marriages. And that the Protestants had to fight that kind of trend. But you see the same thing today. It's like, you know, I don't think... It's just before me and God, us and God, and so some Saturday night we got married. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where's the covenant? Where's the public proceedings? Where's the community involvement in a sense that's going to hold this accountable as well as recognize it as legitimate? If it's not an authority, it's at least a community sharing. Um, But that's a great question, though. It's like, who issues the document? In one sense... Whom God has joined together, let no man put asunder, right? This is ultimately its own sphere because it has direct access to God. And yet there's some involvement in that it's being recognized by church and recognized by state. So at that point, I think I have a fourth down and eight to go. And I'm going to punt because I don't know where to go from it for that one, Carl. So maybe I'll think about that and come back next week on it because I'm just I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to go farther than that. So, that's a great question. Here's the second one. Oh, yeah, Josh, and then I'll do the second one. Um, what about, like, multi-generational living together? Like, in third world countries, or, like, if times are tough and stuff, then, like, you just get married and have to live with your parents, or, uh, you know, maybe there's several generations living in the same house or building or something like that. Yeah. Let me... Let me hold off on that till this one up here because I'm going to kind of tick off a few of that kind of shape because you're, you're tracking. That's where we're going on this. So um, the next one uh, is overreach. And we've kind of talked on it already. It's that it's not claiming to be the only authority. I'm not claiming to be the sole authority in your life, but I'm going beyond my bounds And uh, this one, this one is intriguing. Um, So I don't, I'm not sure, well, I know. This author is from Patrick Henry College, Stephen Baskerville, and I know he's extreme on certain things, so I'm not going to sign off on everything he's saying. But it gave me a book that on a whole bunch of topics on the new kind of, like harassment laws and different things that were kind of eye-opening to kind of work through the nebulousness of all these new kinds of laws on like what is sexual harassment? What is rape under new statutory regulations where somebody can be raped and there was never any physical contact involved? Or things like that. The laws have become much more vague in their application according to this legal authority. But what was most interesting about this was he established, in my mind, he established the revolutionary nature of no-fault divorce laws. Beginning in 19, I think I got it, 1967, California was the first state to have no-fault divorce under Ronald Reagan, who was governor at the time. And all 50 states ended up adopting no-fault divorce laws without ever having a Supreme Court decision needed, which is unusual. So it's what the people wanted, at least through their representatives. But under no-fault divorce, somebody can actually, one or two, right, one or the other, can issue proceedings to end and terminate the marriage without establishing guilt, hence its name. In the middle of the 1800s, according to a history book on divorce that I I read through several years back, you had to go to your state legislature to establish, to actually establish the grounds for divorce. We have moved so far from that. What that does, and my brother who has a law degree, he told me, is that it is easier to get out of a marriage today than to get out of a mortgage. If somebody seduces your business like your clients, you can sue them. But if somebody seduces your spouse, you have no legal recourse. We value the Eighth Commandment much more than the Seventh Commandment in our culture The result of that is, is that it basically cancels. It's like taking the walls down on this castle. We are in deep trouble when it comes to our lack of preserving and protecting fatherhood. Predominantly, and Martin Luther would have gone this route, this is your chief means of putting pressure conscience-wise over here, not the government your conscience, your teaching, your community should be infused with values for marriage and family such that it is shameful to abandon your family. Shameful not to own up to your action and marry the girl if you get her pregnant. It is shameful if you wouldn't do that. There'd be pressure put on you. Not legal pressure, social pressure, which predominantly comes from the religious influence on the family. All three of these have a part to play. Think of giving, by the way. Our government has the right to, to enforce thou shalt not steal. That can be established. Like you just took something that didn't belong to you. So the government gets out its sword and can punish you. But can the government actually punish you for not giving enough? Who says how much you're supposed to give? Right? All of a sudden now there's no line. Well, you should be more generous. You got a pile of money over there. Actually we recognize a lot of it could go to better uses than buying a fifth house or you know, putting I don't know, swimming pools on the top, bottom and the and the middle of it. I don't know. You know, we can look at it and go like there's a lot of good reasons or a lot of good things that money could go to But when it came to giving, giving was meant to be social pressure and conscience pressure through the church saying you should love your neighbor as yourself now. But there's no line that you can establish like you're too rich now and we're going to confiscate your money and make sure somebody else gets it who needs it. But just that little example of wealth redistribution shows you how much our government is looked upon in our culture to handle Doing most of the most of the heavy lifting, like making sure the good things happen. So he makes a he makes an interesting uh, comment in this book about about fatherhood. He says, um, "Not only is marriage not a gender neutral institution, it is not a gender symmetrical one." It does not exist to reconcile one of... It exists, excuse me, to reconcile one of the most basic differences between the sexes. The fact that one sex has an indisputable biological connection to her offspring, while the other must have his bond to his children deliberately established by social convention and legal guarantee. Without social pressure or other means, fathers can just skip town. Where... Mom is much more connected to the baby. Once marriage has been detached from procreation, the entire system of domestic and social stability created by marriage unravels. Marriage is no longer then an autonomous and self-renewing institution mediating the generational interface between public and private and therefore checking government power. Instead, it becomes merely a prize in the political competition a form of government patronage. We'll leave the lawyers to think through the role of marriage in a civil society, but it at least brings up the fact that this is instituted by God to play a chief role in the good of our culture and society and that once this goes away, this just can't say, well, I'll take up that cause and step into that and start playing that part of the court. It's not going to work well. And God didn't establish it to work well. And so there are instances of government overreach into the family as there are instances, like I said, of church overreach into the family. And there can also be overreach of the family also into realms that don't apply to it. Okay. All right. This is only page one, which means there's a whole other page. I think we can go through this a little more quickly, but we'll see, Lord willing. So, when it comes to intergenerational families, Genesis 2.24 says, leave and cleave. Cleave is one of the strangest words in the English language. It's like oversight. It means opposite things. Like that was an oversight, or I'm giving it oversight. It either means I'm neglecting it or I'm paying careful attention to it. To cleave, on the one hand, can mean stick to, and on the other hand can mean cut in half and separate. So it's a weird word, but it rhymes with leave, and so it's too tempting to use. Okay, So it's like the leave and cleave principle. You leave father and mother and you cling to your wife. And God bless the couple that does this because the, the spouse appreciates that when troubles come They lean into each other and then they together lean on God rather than they first call up mom or dad. And that causes a lot of problems typically. So, with regard to this, Genesis has quite a bit of clannishness in it. Where you see a patriarchal system of like Jacob and his boys, you know, and they're kind of all in the family business together and they're kind of, you know, and he's sending them out here and there and doing that kind of thing. I think it's instructional for us to note that polygamy was tolerated among the patriarchs. With Sarah giving Hagar to Abraham, Isaac, God bless him, just had one woman, <laughs> but Jacob, to his own, to his own uh, soul trouble, had four, two wives and two concubines, and the law of Moses henceforth forbid <laughs> marrying two sisters. I think looking back to those days of Leah and Rachel. And so it regulated polygamy at least to that, of that extent. But can we recognize that God tolerated deviations from his design, his original design? Like he did not want a man to have more than one woman. That wasn't what he did. Or a woman to have more than one man. Like he designed one man and one woman. He brought Eve to Adam. And this is what Jesus sanctions when he goes all the way back to the beginning, past. But Moses said we can divorce our wives. And Jesus said it's because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed you to divorce. And then he regulated it. But it was not that way from the beginning. And we could use that to apply to polygamy. It was not that way from the beginning. And we can also use it to apply to clannishness. So for all of us who have homeschooled, and our church has a good bit of homeschooling in it, and we love it. I still love it, even though all my kids are grown. I'm an advocate of it. and so, But it is not my dream, and I hope it won't be your dream, to like, I hope I can just have everybody... All my brood, just within arm's length, right here. Maybe there's expedient reasons for it to happen. And that goes to what you know, was brought up earlier. So this or that reason. But to make it the norm, to make it the expectation, goes against Genesis 1. The dominion mandate says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And when they didn't fill the earth and built a tower so they wouldn't get scattered, God made his will known, you need to scatter. And if they had to scatter under the dominion mandate, how much more do Christians need to scatter under the Great Commission? When they all bunched together at Jerusalem, God sent persecution to make sure those Christians got out. And so I think, honestly, We should think of our children as like we're sending them out into the world. (laughs) That may be down the block, but let them have their own house, let them have their own life, but it's going to be, we're sending them out. Does that make sense? So I think this right here is something that at least among the homeschool group sometimes can end up being like citing Abraham's life or something or Jacob and like that wasn't the norm. (laughs) It wasn't that way in the beginning to leave father and mother and cling to your wife. Okay. At this... Okay. Um, these other ones, covenantal theology um, applies the promise of Abraham to a Christian father and says, you know, God comes to Abraham and says, I will be God to you and to your seed after you. Um, I don't think that a Christian father has that promise. Good people would disagree with me. Some even in this room. Okay? But I'm just... I don't believe that I as a Gentile branch that was on a wild olive tree and broken off and grafted into the rich root of the olive tree that I as an individual Gentile branch have the same promise as the root of the olive tree. I get to enjoy it as a grace individually and I pray my children get to and I wouldn't be surprised they are loved for the sake of of me and my wife in a special way but I don't think I have that promise. The other thing is, is that Romans 9 says not every biological son of Abraham was ever intended in that promise. And so there's actually careful look at the original Abrahamic covenant it makes me think that I can't just say it applies to all my, all my offspring. The one that's probably more pertinent to you is some of you have probably heard of generational sins and wondered like, are we like living under the, you know, like there's kind of a shadow of grandpa over my family, you know, like he sinned and the skeletons in the closet just continue to like cast a long shadow. I am intrigued by the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Before it is given, it says that no longer will my people quote this proverb, the fathers ate the sour grapes and the children's teeth were set on edge. In other words, Dad had candy and I got the cavities. You won't quote that anymore. It seems like there's an individualness to the covenant, of the new covenant, where like they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. They shall, all know, they shall not have to say to their brother, know the Lord. Everybody in the covenant is full members individually and there's, there doesn't seem to be that family connectedness so I'm intrigued by it. I throw it out there for you to chew on. It's found in Jeremiah 31, and the one is before the other. All right. If we, had a, if we had a box, this would be like a nice box. So we all don't pass out. By the way, there's a neighbor next to you. You need to smile at your neighbor. Let's close today's session by looking at proper human authority. You want to do a little exercise the kids are doing? So it's like Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome, Greece and Rome, Greece and Rome, Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome, then God's kingdom. So Deuteronomy chapter, or not Deuteronomy, Daniel chapter 2 has a statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees, right? Gold head, silver chest, waist of bronze, legs of iron, and then clay down at the toes, mixed with the iron, which pictures a new march of empires, of Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the Germanic tribes, it seems, mixing with the Roman Empire and creating what is known as modern Europe. This scheme that Nebuchadnezzar sees... Is then echoed in chapter seven when beasts come out of the out of the sea. Something like a lion, it's got wings. Something like a bear. Something like a leopard with four heads and four wings. And then he doesn't even know what it is. The last one is just a beast, but it's got iron teeth and ten horns which reminds us of the ten toes and the iron of the fourth metal in the statue. So it's pointing at the same thing. The first, the lion is Babylon, the bear is Persia, the leopard is Greece, divided into four kingdoms after Alexander dies, and Rome is the final beast. So those empires are all pictured can you imagine what if Daniel saw this, and I looked at the sea and I saw a bunny rabbit and a duck and a squirrel. It just doesn't have the same impact, you know. What does it tell us about human governments when they get all authority? They're cruel. They're bestial. But the first beast, the lion, was given the mind of a man and stood upright. And it appears like that's an echo of of Daniel chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar is given his reason back and acknowledges the God of heaven. So any government that treats itself as being the authority is going to turn into bestial and cruel. But in a government that recognizes limited authority under God and has a fear of God, can be humane and can keep its authority in check. Are you tracking with me? If that's so, then with regard to other authorities, it is always authority under God. It's interesting, our Pledge of Allegiance really originally didn't have under God in it when it was written about 1900. It was added in the communist era to say we're a theistic country against the atheistic communists. I'm glad it was added because now I, can't, I don't know that I could even recite it if it didn't have under God in it because we have a very lawless government. It doesn't acknowledge the authority of God or his word, and so I'm glad it's in it for a Christian to be able to recite it. I'll be loyal to my country under God. But beyond that, too big of a sphere. It needs to be a small sphere under God. Let's go to the home. Certain husbands are prone to quote 1 Peter chapter 3. Sarah called him Lord. And you are his her daughters. If you know... Sarah called him Lord, obeying Him, and you are his daughters if you do the same. So honey, call me Lord. Do you realize about nine verses, eight verses after that very saying, it says, "Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts." A quote from Deuteron- from Isaiah eight, where it says, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Jesus alone shall be our fear. And if anybody says, Husband says, I am your Lord. The wife needs to say back, I will honor you as my husband, but you are not my sole authority. That would regard you as holy and you are not holy in a class all by yourself. You are simply another man whom God has placed over me for a time in my life. I will respect you, I will submit to you, but under God and under Christ. Ephesians says it too, right? Right before you get wives submit, children obey, slaves obey. Right before you get that, it says submitting to one another, wives, children, slaves, Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. It's in the fear of Christ. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, right? In the fear of Christ. It's not, you are my sole authority. That's not what the lordship is. It's a little L. In fact, in the next chapter, an elder, which one is speaking to you, is said... I cannot lord it over you. I'm to be an example to you. I can't be a lord in your life. I can't just walk into your life and command things. That also recognizes that this is under God. Elders shepherd the flock of God with eagerness, with willingness, not lording it over them, but proving to be an example to them. That same word is used. Christ is lord in the church. Christ is Lord in the government. Christ is Lord in the family. Christ is Lord. He alone is holy. He alone has that position. Now what happens if somebody then interferes with that and says, comes between you and Jesus? You want to go? You believe that you should marry? You should go? This is your calling? Whatever. And dad or mom steps in and says, I forbid it. According to Matthew 18, that would be sinning against you. That would be being a stumbling block in your life. Because if you obey that authority, you have now placed that authority over Jesus. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and Romans 14, it destroys the soul. When Peter ran interference and forbid Jesus to go to the cross, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You have set your interests on man's, not on God's. A stumbling block is when somebody asserts their authority so strongly in your life, they try to take your allegiance to Jesus and then direct it to you, to them. That, according to Luke chapter 17, requires a rebuke. You can do it respectfully, but you say, "Dad, Mom, Pastor, Governor, Boss, I respect you, but you don't have that authority in my life. That authority belongs to Jesus. You give honor to Jesus." This helped explain to me so a while back the difference between if somebody it says so, if somebody sins against you, rebuke them, and I'm like. Do I have to rebuke everybody who does me harm? That's like going to be a horrible life. (laughs) To sin against, sin is a vertical word. Against you and you only have I sinned. You can only sin against God. If a man is involved in sexual immorality, he sins against his own body. The next thing Paul brings up is the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've sinned against the Holy Spirit by ruining his temple. To sin against is now you're interfering with who God is. If you just do evil and do me harm, I can overlook it, I can forgive it, I can tolerate it, forbear it, be patient with you. All sorts of things. That's my prerogative. I can totally drop it and forgive it. But if you sin against me, I'm commanded to rebuke you as an act of honor to God. I can't just ignore it and say, Okay, I guess you're just being big in my life and acting like you're Jesus. You're not Jesus. And that needs to be pointed out according to my Lord. How then do we properly submit? First Peter chapter two and chapter three remind us that when we submit to the government it should it should be as a free man. I am not submitting to the, my state government, my federal government, my local government out of a fear of punishment. I am not submitting it to out of a, a like pinch of conscience like they're really controlling in my life. I am submitting freely. I am a free man set free by the blood of Jesus and he has commanded me to obey you and so I will freely choose to do that in honor to Jesus. And so I act freely. And then the wife, who has a disobedient husband, is told not to be afraid of any fear. And so she acts fearlessly. And we're going to have to talk about what this looks like in a future lesson. In cases of abuse, we're going to apply it. In cases of abuse, separation, divorce, and things like that, when it becomes necessary for there to be, to be some strong action. What we're looking for in any case of submission, you as a citizen, you as an employee, you as a child, if you're in the house, you and as a church member, what we're looking for is a freedom of conscience that is making it's my choice to do this. I don't feel constrained or coerced. And I'm doing it without fear. I'm doing it firmly as an act of faith and worship to God. I think if we have that spirit, then when the boss says, I want those papers in by Monday, we go, you bet. I'm on it. And we, we do it with a forthrightness and an openness before God. Because we do it as to the Lord, not as to men. And when we obey our government, we obey as to the Lord, not as to men because our conscience has been set free by the blood of Jesus and belongs to Christ as Lord. Do you see how that goes? If that spirit is in the church, we'll help maintain all of these in their proper sphere because over this all will be Jesus, who is Lord, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I think that's it. That was a lot. but (laughs) Praise God. I'm happy to talk further. If you have situations of counsel that you want to work through because you feel like this or this is like, it's just, it seems like there's overreach perhaps. or there's Those are good times to actually seek counsel and work it through with somebody who is a trusted brother or sister in the Lord or an elder or something in your church. So let me just pray. So Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this this look today at a very serious topic. Again, we just pray that we would have discernment to apply it right. Lord, we don't want to disobey you, and we don't want to dishonor true authority in our lives. But we also don't want to dishonor you. So we're seeking, Lord, how to maintain that, really, a balance. And so teach us, lead us, for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of our homes, For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.